Hey, Chris. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Fun to be here. Uh, so you you had so many interesting different roles uh, in your career, you know, as an operator, investor, advisor, board member. Uh, but I thought uh, it would be a good place to start the conversation was, uh, you know, your work at Patagonia and uh, especially working in the e-commerce business. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what was your uh, experience back then working at Patagonia? Sure. Yeah, I know. And I'll try to be efficient, but it, but it's, uh, it's sort of a winding road of how I got there. Um, I, uh, you know, got out of school before the internet in the early nineties and had worked at a consulting firm and then at, at uh, bigger firms like AT&T and Macaw Cellular. Um, but when AT&T bought Macaw, I knew I didn't want to work in that kind of environment again. And so I started looking for, for something just different. And I got wind of a, of a product leadership role at Patagonia at their headquarters in Ventura, California. So I wound up getting the job and moving down there in 95. But it was, I would, had sort of gotten exposed to the early, very early days of the internet uh, in my previous role. And so even though it wasn't part of my job mandate, I started basically agitating for the company to sell uh, online. And so the company was and still is owned by its founders, uh, Ivana Melinda Chenard, and they are sort of famously anti-technology. Um, so they, they didn't really want to hear about it, but I, I persisted. And finally, I said, look, why don't we do this? I'll, I'll, let's create a, a one-year contract position as head of e-commerce. I'll take that position and I'll build you an online store. And if you don't like it, you can fire me and shut it down. So I tried to de-risk the choice as much as possible. You know, in the early days of the internet, it's interesting. There, there was, you know, this, this was early. Everything about this was sort of new. And it's hard to play back the tape if you, if you, if you weren't there uh, at the time. One of the things that Patagonia had going for it was, in addition to being a retailer with its own stores, they sold both wholesale and through their own catalog operation. So they already had a distribution center, customer service operations. So in, in, in terms of the, the actual lift of, the, of putting them online, it was actually relatively light duty. The biggest decision and the biggest kind of mind shift at the time was, what, is, what should a brand do online? What is, our, what is our place? What is our responsibility to our customers in the digital medium? And that was the most interesting set of conversations, which is how does a brand put itself online in a way that is both true to the brand and serves the business interests? So it was just a great learning opportunity for me to think about that intersection of, of brand and business and technology at the very beginnings of kind of the internet era. Patagonia has such a unique brand identity even today. Uh, and it's ironic that it almost became a mascot for venture investors to wear a Patagonia vest in the <laughs> anti-tech. Um, how do you see Patagonia as a brand today? So, you know, and again, this is, you know, interesting to think about different kinds of companies. One of the reasons why I do what I do is I just believe deeply in, in the power of founders, that founders are extraordinary people. And it's the vision and energy of founders that creates great companies. So the fact that Patagonia has never raised outside capital is sort of not really the point. The fact to me that it's a, still a founder-led business and that the ability to stay true to a vision uh, through many different kinds of business cycles and you know, growth, growth and change in the business and the world around them, that's what's allowed them, in my view, to continue to hew to a very clear, strong brand identity and not get distracted by you know, the, the way the commercial winds are blowing. So the, the brand, I think, has always stood for a, a deep commitment to, you know, quality and to the outdoors as a, as a you know, basically preserving, preserving the wild spaces so that we can enjoy them as humans and, and doing that in a way that is as, as light impact as it can be on the world. It's sort of, I mean, again, ironically, you know, it's a company that sells things. And I think they've never lost sight of the, of the irony of that, which is 
we are we are part of the consumer economy, and yet in many ways we uh, we believe that that economy has lots of negative externalities, and so so sort of walking that knife edge of authenticity while pursuing a business aim, I think it's just a really fascinating kind of case study in what does it mean to build an authentic brand that that, that cares for people in the environment in the context of of you know late stage capitalism. It's it's a, it's a, not an easy balance to strike. Also. Um... If you look at like what other brands and where fashion as an industry has moved, or consumerism like the Zara's and H&M's, where fast fashion is a thing where you use anything for one season, or you know, and then it's out of your closet. Well, exactly. I think Patagonia is the only one which will offer you, uh, you know, will fix your Patagonia vest or uh, sweaters that you have, and we want you to own it for as long as you can. I think yeah. I, I haven't seen any other brand do that because it's anti you know anti-sales mentality right you want to sell more versus sell less exactly um, no and I, and I think if you were driven purely by market forces let's say it was a public company or owned by shareholders that just wanted to maximize return you wouldn't do things like that but because it's still owned by the founders they have the freedom to pursue things that are authentic to them as, as humans and their values um but allow them to sort of you know find find a middle path in in a, in a world of you know maximizing return they're, they're, they're not maximizing return they're maximizing you know the the total the total if you want to say the completeness of the of the brand and the brand experience so at, at what point did you get into uh, early stage investing so that was again a bit of a, of a winding road i had uh when I was at Patagonia, it was sort of clear to me that the internet was, was happening in Silicon Valley and I needed to figure out a way to get there. So I wound up applying uh, to business school on, only to Stanford Graduate School of Business. And I figured if I get in, I'll go. And if I don't, maybe I'll just move there. I didn't know how I would solve the problem. And I was lucky enough to get in. I would have been in the class of 99. But the, the guys that I hired as my outside vendor to build Patagonia site, because Patagonia had no, no native software engineering or digital design capability at the time, it was a bootstrap company, five or six people who, um, a combination of graphic design and CS undergrads that had basically mostly dropped out of UW-Madison. So they were based in Madison, Wisconsin. They moved their little company to San Francisco right when I started school. And I had been their first customer for a, for a actual e-commerce site. So we, we had basically helped build that practice together. And I was close, really close with the founders there. So I wound up dropping out of business school after the first year joining them as a partner um, to build that business. It was a bootstrap. We never raised outside capital. We, we got it to about 50 people and about 15 million in revenue. And then, um, you know, this, this is 98, 99, and we could sort of feel, feel the world closing in on us in terms of lots of people raised a lot of money to pursue the same opportunity. So we wound up hiring an investment bank that no longer exists called Robertson Stevens to run a, uh, an auction process and sold the business to a public acquirer called Sapient in, in 99. So that was sort of my first experience of have been involved at the beginnings of a company all the way through the, the liquidity cycle. And I just got, got interested in that whole process. You know, again, we were a bootstrap, so it was a different experience to raise the money. I moved back to Seattle, which is where I'm from, for personal reasons, wound up, wound up starting a venture-backed business here. And for me, the, the sort of light bulb moment was it having been in the Bay Area in the, in the middle of the kind of venture you know, web 1.0 bubble and experienced what that was like, good and bad. Seattle was such a weird place to, to practice that work because it's so deep in engineering talent because of Amazon and Microsoft. And, and now, you know, most of the, of the big platform companies have, have engineering teams here. We're so blessed in terms of the, the depth and diversity of our engineering community. But as a founder community, it's still very weak. Most people come here to be employees. 
and some subset discovered that they're really more entrepreneurial minded, but there wasn't a natural community of entrepreneurial energy where everybody was connected and, you know, meetups and fundraising. And, and that just felt like a hole in the market based on my experience. So I wound up um, starting a fund in 98, really, which is, you know, calling it a fund is sort of grandiose. It was, it was my money and my original co-founder's money and, and other founders that we knew in town who'd experienced that same problem and said, hey, let's, let's get together. We'll do the work, but let's get some capital together to try to provide first dollar risk capital to founders who want to build a, you know, a Silicon Valley style business, a really, really great high growth venture, venture scale business. But to do it here, we need to change the ecosystem around us. And the best way to do that was to create kind of a, a first check fund or community that would support founders from the very beginning here in Seattle. Were there any interesting companies um, that got funded uh, with that uh, fund? So the, the most interesting from my perspective was, was one that for a while was our most valuable holding in the end, it turned out not as, not as well, but um, what I got out of that first, out of that investment was my current investing partner. So there was a, there was a we'd invested in a company called Aperture that was founded by a guy named Kabir Shahani, who's now the, the or until recently was a CEO and founder of a company called Amparity here in town, which we also invested in. One of uh, Kabir's engineers, individual contributor engineers and then engineering leaders was a guy named Aviel Ginsberg. And so uh, I got to know Aviel through our investment in Aperture and Aviel was interested in, in, he'd moved to Seattle from the East Coast. He was interested in startups as well. And um, there's a little bit of a side trip here, which I'll talk about in a minute, which is, which is Techstars. But I wound up engaging with Aviel as a diligence partner on a bunch of investings, uh, investing opportunities because he was excited about it and interested. And he was a great counterpart to my kind of business lens to come and look at, look at engineering teams and engineering kind of mindset in, in the organizations we were looking at. So Aviel and I started doing investing together, even though he was still building his, his company over, over the time, a company called Simply Measured. He raised from us, uh, then a firm called MHS Capital, and then from Trinity Ventures and Bessemer uh, Ventures down in the Bay Area. So he kind of went through this very rapid growth cycle um, and, and learned a lot again about that, that whole journey as a venture-backed founder, a technical founder becoming CEO, like lots of kind of valuable lessons learned. When, when he was uh, kind of, they, they'd found an acquirer, it wasn't as a good outcome as they'd wanted, but they found an acquirer for the business. And so the conversation we were having was, do you want to found again? I'd love to, you know, I'd be happy to back you as a founder because I think you're an amazing founder, or I really enjoyed working with you as, as a partner in the investing work. Would you ever want to cross over? And so we wound up, um, working together to create an accelerator program for Amazon with Techstars called the Alexa Accelerator that he ran for three years. He joined me as a venture partner for Fund 3 and then has been my full investing partner for Funds 4 and 5. So not only was it a really interesting journey as an, as an investor, but I got an even more valuable thing out of it for, for me and for our work, which is, which is a really complimentary partner in the work of supporting entrepreneurs here in Seattle. Talk a little bit more about, you know, working with Techstars. I think uh, you were running Techstars Seattle uh, at some point for a couple of years uh, because this Techstars is interesting because there are other similar kind of accelerators. Uh, there's 500 startups. Obviously, there's YC, which everyone yep. knows across the world. Uh, right. How do you see Techstars particularly different? What what does it do better than, let's say, you know, 500 startups or YC? Yeah, no, great, great question. And I'll, I'll give you sort of the history, which is when we were starting, Founders Co-op, which was in 2008, YC was just getting started. And, and you know, we had this same idea of a community of founders. So we were really inspired by what, by what YC was doing. Um, and, and even, you know, kind of 
you know, candidly kind of borrowed some of their best ideas in terms of, you know, we still have on our site uh, an application form, which anybody can walk in. You don't have to be referred into us as a firm. If you want to tell us what you're doing in a, in a short text email, we'll, we'll evaluate that and respond ourselves. So have always been inspired by that, that very open door transparency model of investing that YC, I think, really pioneered. But the company that I co-founded here in Seattle, one of our investors and board members was a guy named Brad Feld, who at the time was at Mobius VC or now SoftBank. But he had left to, to start his own firm, Foundry Group, in Boulder and had been a co-founder and original investor in Techstars with David Cohen. So we were aware of the model of, of accelerators um, from early days from YC. And then when Brad and David started Techstars, and, and they were explicitly sort of everywhere but the Bay Area, right? So they, they were starting in Boulder, which is a non-obvious geography. Seattle has always been kind of, a, you know, as I mentioned, more of a company town than a startup town. But we just thought it would be a really powerful accelerant to the community to, to have a Techstars program in Seattle. So we basically said, hey, you guys, whenever you're ready to expand outside of Boulder, we would love to, to run the program here. So the, their first expansion city was Boston. We were the next, and then New York was the, was the fourth. And for a while, they were sort of seasonal, where Boulder was summer, Seattle was fall, New York was winter, and Boston was spring, if I remember correctly. All that's, of course, gone, gone by the wayside now. But we... we um, the model was very different then too, which is, you know, Techstars has become a global business with its own fund and capital formation. In the beginning, Techstars was a, a community, a shared community and a brand and a set of values, but the fund for Techstars was actually raised locally. So all of the LPs for Techstars were local. We were the GPs of a fund. And, and it was another kind of way of thinking about bringing together a community of interest around high-performing entrepreneurship in Seattle. Um, again, that's, that's evolved since then. But to, to us, you know, having, having a fund was a useful tool, having an accelerator to us, if you think about entrepreneurship in a community where things are quite diffuse, where there's pockets of excellence, but, but no one really, it's not that well cross-threaded, a Techstars is almost like an API or a fabric that says, in a very legible way, on annual cadence, there's an application window, startups can apply, there's a program window in which the work will be done. There's a way for mentors to engage programmatically. There's a way for investors to engage pro programmatically. So it gave almost a substrate that allowed the entire community to come together around a, a cohort of high-performing entrepreneurs and get to know each other and, and collaborate in the work of entrepreneurship. So I think that's still true of Techstars today. And I think it's, it, it, it allowed Seattle, I would say, it was a, it was a contributor to Seattle becoming a, a higher-performing community around supporting entrepreneurs. So I think hopefully that answers your question. It's a little bit of a long answer, but uh, it, was, it was a journey. Yeah. Uh, so you then started Founders Co-op after Tech uh, Seattle, or no, so the, so uh, yeah, so this, is, this is this is what's always confusing. Is that we started the fund first, and the fund has always been the through line of the business. TechStars was, in our view, uh, a companion project, but for for lots of reasons I I can go into. A fund is a is a better business for the owners, meaning for the GP, than running an accelerator. And as an entrepreneur, as much as I love you know Brad and David and and the TechStars community. It was always somebody else's company. And I think, you know, uh, just the way that my brain works, like I, I, I prefer to be master of my own destiny than to be part of somebody else's machine. And so we, we helped build the brand of Techstars in the community here. But when it came time to choose, it was clear to me that the fund was, would continue to be sort of the center of my work. So uh, what was your thought process when starting the fund, uh, you know, fund and how did sort of that thinking change, um, you know, after, you know, maybe 200 to 50 plus companies? Uh, yeah, in the fund? yeah. So I think the, the beginning, as I mentioned, was very, it's like very naive, if you want to think of it that way. Like 
you know, I, I joke sometimes that I'm an accidental money manager because at some level, if you are running an investment fund, that's that's your job. You 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 know accumulate capital from investors. You make a set of commitments about the work you're going to do, and then you then you produce return for those investors. And and if you're successful, you, you keep that cycle going. I don't think I had really any appreciation for that side of the work at the beginning. For me, it was very much focused on the founders and the work of supporting founders and having been an operator, really being in the, in the business of, of sitting side by side with founders from the earliest days. And I think that first fund was very experimental in that sense, which you know we, we did sort of quasi incubation work where we, we were working with founders before they even had, in fact, Aviel's company began life as untitled startup. They didn't even know what they were gonna do at the beginning. So very, very hands-on work. I think over the course of that first fund, I got clearer about what it means to be a professional investor, meaning both the fiduciary responsibility and, and the, the motion of the business as a, as a business, as opposed to just getting in there and doing some work. And it was really from fund two forward that I, that I started to, to think more clearly about, you know, what is the role of our fund in the context of the market? What is our competitive set? How do we fit into the landscape of venture capital more, more broadly? So again, and the, the journey from, I just see a problem and I want to solve the problem, which is a very entrepreneurial thing to, to developing a more mature kind of view, holistic view of what role does my entity play in, in, the, in the broader competitive set in which we're playing and how do, what is our edge as, as a fund and how do, we, how do we prosecute that edge in a way that creates advantage and defensibility for the fund over time, much in the same way that you're building. You know, we help people build businesses of their own. We, we have a business that we need to think about how we nurture and, and develop over time as well. So lots of, lots of detail I could go into, but I think it was that going from naive to a more mature understanding of what is the role of a venture capitalist in the context, not only of a community, but of the industry, what has been a real journey for, for me. I think I was, uh, I was reading your uh, post about, I think it was on the occasion of when Remitly went uh, public. I think you wrote a post uh, and I think you referred to uh, Remitly's founding team sort of uh, defining how you pick, you know, uh, how you pick your next companies. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, the, how, how did it, you know, picking or investing in Remitly define how did you, how you pick, you know, your next companies? Yeah, no, and I think that's, a, it's a great way of sort of getting at becoming an investor. It's not like, it's, it's a learned skill, right? It's not something that I think people are necessarily good or bad at from, from the inception. A lot of it is just building the muscle of, you have a lot of experience with lots of different kinds of companies, lots of different kinds of founders, and you develop not only a sense of what you believe, like what's the kind of founder or kind of opportunity that I, I can deeply get behind, but also pattern recognition around what kinds of people tend to produce success and what is that success based on? And I think for me, the remotely experience is, is just, it's, it's, a, it's a great highly visible example of which I have lots of other examples that I could share. And it's reinforcing of the, of the brand and philosophy that we have as a fund, which is it, it really has success as an entrepreneur has much less to do with the what, meaning what problem you choose to solve and much more to do with the who and the how which is what, what are the unique values and characteristics and capacities of the found, founding team, not just a found, founder as an individual, but, the, but a team with complementary skills and values and skill sets. And what is their, what habits do they, do, they, do they develop on the way to building a business that allow them to continue to adapt and learn and succeed in the face of adversity? Because it's really, again, there's, you know, up and to the right is, is, a, is, a, is a fantasy that doesn't exist in real life. I've, I've never seen a, an entrepreneurial journey that didn't have lots of, drama and twists and turns and setbacks and it's the it's the mindset and temperament of the founders their resiliency on the journey and their ability ultimately because no even the founders can't do all the work 
their ability to, to assemble a team of people that share their values and their commitment to an outcome through lots and lots of adversity, that, that kernel of founder values and capacity, uh, the, the tenacity and persistence and the leadership ability to build a team and navigate an entire team through, through adversity and difficulty is really what we're solving for first and foremost as investors. We, we will follow founders into lots of different domains that we don't know anything about if we believe in the people and their capacity to do that thing. And, and for us, so, so Matt, um, the original founding CEO and still the, still the CEO of Remitly was referred to us by another investor. He, he had, you know, this is all kind of out, out in the world. I'm sort of retelling his story, but he had um, experienced as, as a leader of Barclays Bank's business in Kenya, what it, what it was like on the receive end of the remittance business, how important remittances were and how broken that experience was for the customer on the other end. And because mobile technology, mobile phones had just, you know, coming into the ascendance, his and Josh's original idea was, why isn't there a better solution end-to-end, send-to-receive solution that leverages the power of, of mobile phones would just be just coming up. In fact, the company's original name was Beamit Mobile, um, which remittly is, was a brand that came later. And it was this idea of, you know, beaming money from one phone to another. That, that was the kind of the, the kernel of the idea. And you know, lots of twists and turns. In, in the end, mobile phones wound up not being as important as we thought they would be on the received side. There, I, could, I could go chapter and verse about all the challenges and difficulties and, and reimaginations we had, we had to do, or the founders had to do, and I was participant early on. But it, it was the, the quality of the founding team, Matt Shavas and Josh, and their resilience and ability that, that, that is the sort of the beacon for me, not the business itself or the software or the technology or anything else. Just uh, going back to what you said when you um, were going to work for Patagonia, uh, you said the internet, you know, coming the coming of internet was very clear. Um, and if you combine the same logic with you know what is happening with uh, Web three, a lot of people, you know, tend to look at Web three as the next thing, and it also intersects with what Remitly does, right? Um, you know, in payments and you know uh, cross country, cross border payments. Um, on remittances and it is you know sort of like the number one use case you get pitched as you know a web3 use case um, so combining those two things do you think um, do you see web3 as as important as the hype uh, how much <laughs> how much yeah. do you see that there's no, a, a use case and since a, you work yeah. with remitly, you have a, you're probably one of the best person to ask this question um, you know, uh, can cross-border payments actually work with Web3? Yeah, no, I, I think it's, it's a great question. And I will say up front, I, I don't think I have answers to that question, but I have, but I have opinions that I'm happy to share. Um, I will say that, that my clarity and conviction around the importance of the internet in the, in the middle 90s was much stronger um, than it is about any other technology before or since. And, and one of the things that I've noticed about the venture capital industry or the tech industry broadly, is that there's, a, there's always a desire to find the new thing. And so there, there, there tend to be waves of enthusiasm around technologies, some of which have proven to be deeply important and some of which have not. You know, one other example, you know, a few, maybe five or seven years ago was, was drones. Everyone was sure that drones and UAVs were gonna be a big deal and you know, huge wave of enthusiasm and investment. And I think we have yet to see, other than in a military context, that, that um, enthusiasm being merited in terms of commercial outcomes. So you develop a certain skepticism and investor about the new, new thing, um, because I would say in some cases, it's absolutely foundationally true and the internet was and is that cloud infrastructure, the shift to the cloud absolutely is one of those things. 
you know, is Web3 one of those things? I frankly am skeptical. I have yet to see evidence that it, that it matters in the way that its enthusiasts say that it does. But, you know, the, the future, will, future will tell us. I don't think I'm, I'm right or wrong about that. One thing that I will say about, based on my experience with Remitly, is I've gotten a, a much stronger appreciation for the, the values and the reasoning behind regulatory frameworks around cross-border payments. And I think there are both national interests around um, fiat currencies and the ability to control your own destiny as, as an issuer of currency. And then there are all kinds of, I think, well-founded regulatory limits on cross-border transfers having to do with criminal activity, whether it's you know, drugs or child trafficking or, or you know, organized crime, you name it. So I, I actually think that the, the, both the government's interest in its own currency and the government cross-border interest in, in main, maintaining a regulated framework around how money moves across borders is, is well-founded and, and based on com this common interest, based on the social good. So in many cases, what I see in the Web3 environment is it's less, I mean, certainly there's interesting technology at work around distributed um, permissionless activity. It feels to me more like a um, almost a religious or political agenda than it does a technological agenda, which is there is a desire and a certain kind of segment of the, of the society for you know, freedom from, from government, right? So the, a liber, anarcho libertarian mindset that you know, we shouldn't have to, to com comply by anybody's rules and it should be, all be self-organizing and democratic and you know, we're, we're gonna go our own way. I actually think that that is wrong, that that leads to bad societal outcomes. So not only am I skeptical of the technological merits of, of Web3 as, as a, the new thing, as the foundational technology of the internet going forward, I'm also frankly skeptical of, of the rationale for why it needs to exist, which is to me, the internet, despite its challenges around social media and other things, has brought lots of material benefits to, to the world in terms of you know, communications and connectedness and efficiency of business and all kinds of things. I don't share the values of the Web3 community in, in removing the power of the state to control its own currency and, and to control negative behaviors, negative externalities of, of society, both within and across, across borders. So, uh, you know, we'll see how that all plays out. Um, many, many people I know disagree with me deeply about all, all of that, but based on my experience and my journey with, with particularly with regulated money transmission across borders, I, I would be disappointed, frankly, if, if the um, vision of Web3 comes true, because I think it will lead to many more negative and positive outcomes. Uh, one, I mean, uh, the one point of view that is often missed uh, in this whole, you know, currency argument or like transfers argument internationally, and I've done both B2C and B2B, and I've done it for like 10 years now. And it's it actually right now happens with one click. Uh, I don't see why people keep saying that, you know, it takes a lot of time, you know, um, it only takes maybe, a, you know, 30 minutes to set up for your first time. But after you set up and you're making a legitimate transaction, it actually takes one click. Um, I don't understand the exact reason from where, you know, the Web3 community comes up with this idea that it takes a long time and it's tedious process. Like if you use Send Money or uh, which, which got acquired by PayPal or, you know, Remitly or any of these services, like it's, it's literally one click. It shows up in your Indian or, you know, uh, whichever bank account within four hours, less than four hours. And it's instantaneous after a couple of transactions. So I, yeah. I tend to not see a technological problem at all there. <laughs> no, no. Um, I, I, if, if, to be fair, I think that the two aspects of it that I think people zero in on, one is, so if you're moving money 
you know, across borders, there's, there's a whole framework that's called KYC, know your customer. And, and obviously requires the disclosure of a lot of information, PII about yourself so that, so that we, you know, they can verify that you're not a criminal, you're not on a terrorist watch list. Like there, there are frameworks in place. And the reason why KYC is done is to check against a lot of bad actors so that, so that you limit the ability for bad actors to move money across borders. That's, and that's, there's friction and privacy invasiveness in there. And I get, I get that people don't like that. And then the other one is if you're moving from one currency to another, there's always some, some losses in terms of current, like transferring from one currency to another inevitably involves a middleman and there's a rake uh, or, or, a, or a frictional loss or a deadweight loss if you wanna, wanna look at it that way. So the idea of a global currency that's the same in every geography, you, you know, where you don't have to disclose yourself and it's all anonymous, you get rid of the privacy stuff and you get rid of the, the actual, there is legitimately a cost to moving, tra translating between currencies. Those are real objections. To me, the, the cost of those is, is worth the pain, but everyone's opinion is different. Yeah, uh, so then how do you equate with this? Because when I talk to a lot of VCs or like listen to a lot of VCs talk about how one of the core reasons that is given for, you know, Web3 is a category that we have to be in, uh, is a lot of young, talented people moving there. Like, how do you see that particular point? Like, is yeah. there a technology where young people moved and nothing came out of it? I mean, I think, I think, as I mentioned, there, there are every couple of years, I mean, you know, let's pick another one, VRAR, right? Like there has been even machine learning or artificial intelligence, like there have been false starts in a number of different segments of innovation where for a while, everybody was sure that VRAR was the next big thing and lots of money went into it. And I think, you know, for a bunch of reasons, and, and there's still, you know, Meta is still deeply committed, a lot of people are deeply committed. It may just be that the technology was harder than everybody under, understood and it's going to take more effort. I, I um, in, so let's zoom out a little bit. The last 10 or 12 years have been a, um, one of the kind of, again, you know, at one of the global asset, one of the big global asset bubbles of, of, our, of our time. Uh, and, it, and it was driven by, uh, you know, a couple of financial crises that caused central banks in general to pursue a zero interest rate policy and to pump up the, the balance sheet, basically flood the economy with, with um, liquidity. So whenever that happens, resources get scarce. I mean, we've seen it in supply chain, the crunch, and we've seen it in the labor crunch. So the perception is it's really hard to find engineers and I have to do the thing that they want to work on. I think we're in the middle of a bit of an unwinding of that asset bubble. And I think the idea that I have to, I have to be pursuing the thing that the talent wants to work on, that's always, that's always true. Like the most talented engineers are gonna to flow towards the most interesting ideas. Um, I think in general, the, the constraints around labor, much like the constraints around other, other resources are going to fade as, that, as the um, as federal, you know, as, as the global, federal balance sheets get paired back over the next five, five plus years. So the idea that you have to be doing the thing that talent wants to do, I think talent's gonna, the job market's gonna soften. People will be more interested in having just a job with a great company with good values that, that, that is interested in their contributions. And the idea that only the best people are working on Web3, I suspect some of the, some of the heat will come out of that idea. But I think you're right. Like in, in general, technologists wanna work on the coolest, shiniest, sexiest new thing. And that changes every couple of years. And sometimes the industry's right and sometimes it's wrong. And so far I'm yet to convince that Web3 is the thing. Uh, so I think from that uh, asset bubble, I think we also witnessed something different in the cycle is like these mega venture funds. 
uh, right? Yeah. In bill, more than billion dollar venture funds. I think we've seen four billion dollar funds from A6NG. Uh, and whenever I see uh, a large fund, one of the thought that comes to me is uh, somewhere I read like, you know, if you if you're diversifying too much, you're actually correlating. Like if I end up investing in a bunch of companies in India, from US and Africa, what I'm really creating is an asset class which is correlated to SMP probably, right? Uh, and I feel like this is probably the same effect that you would, you know, come up with when you invest too much money uh, into, let's say, you know, I take a billion dollar fund and I invest 10 million each into a seed stage company. Am I generating outsized return or am I going to generate, um, you know, uh, another, SMPs sort of you know ETF sort of a return. So is there a size where you know the venture economics break and sort of don't make sense? Yeah, I mean I think there's there's a bunch of different things in there that we should probably tease apart. One, so one is, and and to put in context why money might have flowed to these kind of later stage or crossover funds is you know, if you look at the early the early days of the internet or just in general the IPO market. It used to be that a company would go public much earlier in its life cycle. So the, so the private equity market and the public equity markets would essentially pass the baton much earlier on. And, and usually most of, the, most of the money that goes into private shares lives on the public side of the, of the balance sheet. So there's, you know, there's, there's VE, there's VC, there's private equity, and there's, and there's publics. What happened over the last cycle, and, and probably, I don't know, it, maybe Facebook, when Google went, went public quite early and at a very small valuation, Facebook was one of those companies that carried its valuation quite a ways in the private markets before going public. And that, that became much more common. So from an investor perspective, I think you had this perception that in order to capture the returns that previously would have been available to the post-IPO market, you had to shift money into the private side. So there was, there was investor LP demand to get into the market where the return, because the returns were out, out of scope for them if they were public market investors. So there was, there, was a, there was a push function of money trying to get access to private, private market returns. That, that was a phenomenon. And again, driven by the asset bubble. But if you, if you set that against the question you're, you're asking, which is what are, the, what are the returns expectations of venture capital versus the returns expectations of private investing? Venture has always been considered a risky market where it's highly illiquid, there's a lot of failure, but the rate of return of your winners outpays for all the rest. And so a venture fund, the expectation is because you have to sit on the money for you know, 10, 10 plus years, the returns have to be, you know, pick a number, 3x net over the life of the fund or three, three to 5x net. And of course, the, the larger the denominator, the bigger the fund, the harder it gets to, to put those kind of turns on money. It just, it's just, it, the mathematics get really, really difficult. So uh, I think you're absolutely right. As, as, in, in, as a general rule, as funds get larger, their ability to produce the kind of returns that risk-adjusted returns that investors are demanding gets harder and harder. In a 10 to 12 year asset bubble, it maybe looked like it was gonna be possible. You had big funds like Tiger Global and KOTU and others that um, it looked as if that, that was gonna be possible and, and LPs continue to refresh them every, every couple of years with you know, 10 billion plus in, in capital. I think we're now seeing the, um, the other side of that bet, which is it, it feels like you know, the IPO market has closed, valuations are collapsing. A lot of these funds that had, had both public and private books, they've seen a big drawdown on their public side and the, their private side valuations are moving, they're stickier because it's, it's based on, on private financings, but you're starting to see a deflation on both sides of the balance sheet. And I think to your point, whether you had a concentrated strategy or a distributed strategy, 
the larger funds are going to really struggle to, to post the kind of marks that investors, I think, justifiably should have, should demand for the illiquidity um, and risk of, of those funds. I think another sort of phenomenon that happened, I think, is these large funds converting, you know, positioning themselves to hold uh, their equities in the public market. Like I think Sequoia did it, Day 16Z, and a bunch of other firms did it. And you as a fund manager, like how, how did you think about that? And um, like, did you explore that uh, as a possibility? And what is your general thought about doing that? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, again, every, every fund has a different team composition or different strategy. But my experience of raising money from the institutional capital markets is that for the most part, investors don't like to have one manager that's, that's covering a broad range of strategies. They like to be able to, to develop a basket of managers. Again, if you think of portfolio construction, you want public exposure, you want you know, liquids and you know, bond exposure, you want private equity exposure, you want venture exposure. Each of those is a bucket. And so the idea that if I give money to Sequoia, they're gonna be running both an early stage book and a gross stage book and a public book as an LP, I don't, I don't like that. I, I want to be able to pick and choose and swap out my managers to construct the portfolio the way I want it. I think Sequoia has the power to do that because they've had the returns. And so you know, maybe, maybe it makes sense and maybe it's a good bet. But in my experience, of, of a, if you don't have the brand power of a Sequoia, you're much better off as, as a GP of a fund picking, picking your lane and deciding I'm going to be the best fill in the blank, seed stage manager that I can be. I'm going to be the best series A manager that I can be. I'm going to be, be the best crossover person. In general, LPs would much rather buy from you if you understand your lane and you stick to it than if you try to blend a bunch of buckets because you might be great early stage, but you might not be the best public markets risk manager. But in order to buy the product, they have to buy everything. And, and in general, from a, it's not very customer friendly if you think about that way. If the LP is the customer, it's not respecting the customer's wish for control over how their funds are allocated. So uh, continuing the conversation in early stage investing, uh, I mean, obviously, we've seen a massive shift in terms of what valuations we can expect, both in public and private. How are you thinking in terms of like investing in early stage or seed stage where you invest in next six to twelve months? Like, what are the, what are the things you're looking out for? Like, are you actively investing? Are you excited to invest, or are you like taking it slow? Yeah, so um, we're currently investing out of our fifth fund. Um, so, and I've been doing this for 14 years. And I think every, so every fund has a 10 to 12 year life. And because we're pre-seed or seed stage investors, we expect our companies, like it's probably median seven to 10 years to liquidity for things we're doing. So it's not that we're immune to the business cycle, but the business cycle is not a primary consideration for the work that we're doing. We're really trying to pick founders that are solving problems that we think have that kind of duration in them. Um, and so, you know, yes, I think, you know, valuations probably will be more favorable for investors in the next little bit than they were in the last cycle. So maybe we'll get more for our money in terms of ownership. But on the flip side, our companies are going to be selling into a more difficult buying environment, right? If you're selling, and, and, and to be clear, we mostly do enterprise software, whether it's developer facing or, or business layer facing. So it's people who sell tools to business one way or another. And when the economy is shrinking, businesses are more careful about how they spend their money. So we might pay less for a, an investment, but they're going to have a harder time growing revenue with the headwind of, of, so it's like, it all kind of comes out in the wash. Similarly on the liquidity side, you know, when, when, when it's boom times, we pay more to get it into investment. But if we have a, a liquidity event, an acquisition or something, we also tend to make more, more money on that side. In down cycles, we pay less at the beginning, but the liquidity premiums tend to be smaller as well. So 
really the tide comes in and the tide goes out. Our job is, is, is and has always been to pick the, the most inspiring, um, compelling founding teams working on the most compelling problems. And again, for us specifically, those problems tend to sit in the enterprise. What are the you know areas that you're interested right now in enterprise software um, specifically? Yeah, I mean one of the, one of the things that I think was so interesting about the recent COVID um, kind of shock to the economy was if you live in the technology business, it's easy to assume because we all live and breathe software, and all of our work tasks are, are software powered. No matter what kind of whatever we're doing, there's a tool that we're using to do it. I think what COVID exposed is how much of the economy is still running on what I would call legacy methods, face-to-face -face meetings, you know, flying around to meetings, Excel sheets that are shared through email. Like it's astounding what percentage of the economy still hasn't modernized its tooling. And what was powerful about, I think about COVID was it helped shock a lot of those business leaders to realizing, hey, if we've been kicking the can on modernization of our infrastructure, we, we waited too long. And now we, now we, and I think some of that will go away as, as, the, as the COVID, you know, kind of panic abates. But I do think there has been a mindset shift in business leaders, which is you can no longer afford to run a business through traditional means. You have to be looking for tools that allow, and frankly, one of the things that's driving as a labor force, a lot of workers don't want to come into the office or don't want to come into the office in the same way. So you need to give your workers the tools to do their work. Increasing those tools have to be functional in a distributed fashion. So like as, as an investor enterprise software, we just feel like there's so much headroom still in that macro phenomenon of, of existing incumbent businesses digitizing their business processes. Like you could, everywhere you look, it feels like there's opportunity. One thing I would say that's a bit of a nuance on that is some of, like, some of the biggest, broadest opportunities, the most generic opportunities have been competed away. So a company like Salesforce has pretty well consolidated being a system of record for sales and customers in large enterprises. There are others as well, but you get, you get the idea. Like you wouldn't attack that kind of very broad horizontal thing. Increasingly what we're seeing is there are lots of industries that have very specific business requirements because of regulation, because of their business dynamics, where they can't use a generic horizontal tool. So you can't use a Salesforce if you're in freight forwarding, you use a freight management system because of the, the peculiarities of the business. If you're working in healthcare, there are, there are requirements, both regulatory and data requirements, that you can't use a generic database. You have to use something that's bespoke to healthcare. All over the economy, there are examples like this. Those legacy systems are really hard to rip out. Meaning that once, once you've invested in the infrastructure, you're, you're not going to make a, it's, it's not, a, not an easy decision to say, we're going to go back to first principles about our data layer. But there's lots of need to modernize both customer-facing and employee-facing tooling on top of those data layers. So I think an area that we're particularly excited about as investors is where are there large industries that are stuck with a legacy system of, of one kind or another and, and feel an urgent need to modernize either because of digital competition or just because of the expectation of customers and employees. And so we've made a series of investments that look like that in construction, in healthcare, in logistics. And again, we feel like there's, that, there's lots and lots of room to, to make really good businesses that look like that. Um, they have venture scale for sure, and and require very high quality software execution, um, both on both on software functionality and on customer facing capabilities. Because really, you're trying to bring a modern capacity to a legacy system. So some some complexity, um, not for the faint of heart. Many people think those problems are boring, but we love what we call those sort of plumbing problems of modernizing legacy systems with with modern software that sits on top. So uh, one of the things that, you know, I also wanted to ask you about is 
uh, who is the right person and when is the right time for someone to get in and become a VC? Like, who is the right person to get into venture and become a GP or, you know, work as a partner at a VC firm? Yeah. So, you know, again, I think the old model, which probably still prevails in some places, is people who wanted to be in financial services. And they, and they came up through, you know, management consulting or investment banking, and, and they're very facile with spreadsheets and models and that sort of thing. And I think those people are and continue to be well-suited to late-stage investing because late-stage investing is really not about a, a discovery of is there, is there or is there not a business here? It's how good is the business? How good are the margins? Where can you apply capital to, to make the business perform better? So I, I can't really talk about that layer because it's not where I spend my time. I think what's happened as the capital requirements of starting a software business have collapsed because of you know open source tooling and cloud infrastructure, the, the bottom of the stack where it's you know pre-seed and seed and maybe series A, where it's really about working with founders to discover a problem and to build an organizational capacity for innovation, that feels to me like it's much less well-suited to people who've had a background in finance or, or think of it as a financial services problem. It's really a, a human capital organization design um, you know, journey of like, you know, customer discovery problem. Finance plays a role, but finance is sort of the tail and not the dog at the early stages. And in, in my experience, the best investors at that stage are people who know what it's like to build a business, to build a team, to, you know, manage the adversity. Um, it's maybe helpful to have raised venture capital before on the other side of the table, because you have some more empathy for what, what that looks like. But I think I, I feel like the most effective early stage investors are people who are practitioners first, and so entering, entering the, the, the industry too early, you sort of miss the step of building the muscle of what does it mean to operate with, with excellence. So I would always rather see an investor who's been a high-performing operator or founder themselves in a way that, that where they've been through the whole journey. And again, like my partner, Abiel, going from IC engineer to founder, CTO, to CEO, raising capital, the whole, the whole thing, like he, he was able to experience the entire arc of a career as, you know, from, from IC to CEO and, and, and through exit, that kind of perspective is just invaluable. I think if you're helping entrepreneurs think through the challenges that come through that experience. Um, you also probably witnessed a lot of acquisitions, um, you know, during your career. So I thought it might be interesting to get to know your perspective of, uh, you know, what are the, you know, what are the through lines did you observe in terms of why successful acquisitions happen? Yeah, I mean, I see there's sort of simplistically two kinds of acquisitions. One, the best, the best kind is where you've actually created a strategic asset that is either threatening to or on the strategic roadmap of a large incumbent, and, and they will pay a premium to bring that cap capability in-house and deny it to the market or to their competitors. And, and so we've experienced those in a, you know, a handful of, of, of times. And I think it's very rewarding in the sense that you really feel like the, the team has built something of extraordinary value. Everyone realizes a, a premium return and the contributions of the team and the acquiring company are really significant strategically. They, they change the strategic capacity of the acquirer. Then those are, those are just the, the best possible. Most acquisitions don't look like that. Most acquisitions are more tactical, which is a team has carried an opportunity a, a certain distance. They've built something of value. Customers clearly want it but they failed to prove to the market that there is a continued trajectory here, that, that, it's, that it's either, it's, it's you know, more of a feature than a strategic capability. You can still do well, everyone can do well, the acquirer, the, the acquiring company, the investors in those cases, um, but it's, it's less satisfying in the sense that, you know, often the role that the team plays in the acquiring company is less strategic. 
the founders can get more frustrated because they're they're essentially begun from being masters of their own domain to being a cog in a larger machine without without really access to the leadership layer or the strategic layer in the business. Most of them look like that. And then and then the the kind of very bottom are sort of saves, which is you know the aqua hire thing where you've got a team of people that are highly capable. They work well as a team and they're working on a direction that an acquirer is interested in. And you know, maybe the investors get their money back, but it's really it's 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 a team acquisition. So I guess maybe it's those three three tiers of acquisition. Um, all you know, all are good in the sense of recycling talent and capital and kind of making the system work. But the most satisfying are are the latter. I'm mean, sorry, are the are the very the very first category I described, the strategic ones. So we are almost at the end of our conversation. Um, yep. I want to end the conversation with one last question. Um, you, know, you mentioned uh, when you first moved to Seattle, uh, you know, Seattle didn't have a lot of you know, funding, especially for early stage. Uh, in a lot of ways, we're still not, you know, equal to SF probably. Uh, what do you expect uh, to see uh, in Seattle in the next couple of years? And what would you ideally want to see? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things that are, that are making me really hopeful about the, the next 10 or 20 years in Seattle's innovation ecosystem. One of which is, you know, in addition to the big platform companies, the Amazons, Microsoft, we're beginning to have a really satisfying set of high growth companies that were, that were you know, newly founded recently and have gotten to the public market sort of very late stage kind of stability, you know, whether it's a convoy or an outreach or remitly um, or more, you know, even prior to that, like an Aptio or a Zillow, where there are people who native to Seattle who've had the journey from founding to, to outcome. So they didn't just come as employees and work at big companies. They sort of, they, they because living through hypergrowth is very different from being part of a, of a big machine. You just, you, you develop new skills and kind of awareness of what that, what that experience is like. So we're already beginning to see a new generation of founders that are spinning out. So, so I think that from a founder perspective, we have a much more interesting, diverse set of experiences that are feeding the founder ecosystem that we've had in, in years past. Second, because a lot of the Bay Area companies have had cloud engineering offices up here because of the talent pool, there's a much stronger, there's been a much stronger flow of talent up here so that so even the talent pool, even at the big companies, is more diverse and there's more flow and liquidity in the talent pool than there was when it was sort of monolithically Amazon and Microsoft. And last, and some of this is just due to tax policy, you know, Washington, there, there's this, the new um, capital gains tax, but it's been a relatively low tax state. So there's been a no, number of entrepreneurs and investors that have moved from the Bay Area to Seattle really for tax favorability. And they may have thought that they were retiring or taking a step back, but inevitably they sort of come back into the market. So each of those has driven new energy, new diversity, and new kinds of investor thinking into the ecosystem. So we, we still aren't and will never be the Bay Area. We're a different kind of machine. But I have seen steady incremental progression in the quality and diversity and kind of vitality of our ecosystem. And that's been, it's been really, it's been a long journey and it's been slow, but I do think we're making significant progress due to those kind of three contributing factors. Uh, I know you have to go. Uh, so thanks for taking time and uh, being generous with your time. No, it's absolutely my pleasure. I, I enjoy the conversation. I appreciate being able to, to talk about it. And I think you've asked some really interesting questions that got me thinking about, about you know, what I do and how I do it. So thanks for that. Thank you.